Our scripture this morning is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning and uh, welcome to the Latham Campus of Christ Community. Um, from the video, uh, you recognize we, we value the arts at Christ Community, we, really all vocations. We believe that that's one of the primary places which all of us uh, get to, to love our neighbor and also to, to serve our God uh, in all the things that we do. I'm looking forward to going down. There'll be the first Fridays there. Um, we'll, that that uh, gallery will be open and i um, looking forward to going and seeing it with my family. So um, let, me, let me pray for us and we'll look at this, this psalm in particular uh, for this morning. Let me pray. God, um, God, we need to hear from you. God, especially in, in moments like the psalmist describes of, of waiting, um, uh, of, of heartache. God, I, I pray for, for all of us here, whether, whether we come with, with joy and excitement or, or weighed down or, and distracted uh, by the many things going on around us and within us, God, I pray that you would make these words true for us, true in us, that we would experience them now. God, that you would take our tears and that you would turn them into joy. Our heartache and our pain into laughter. Because that's a work only you can do. And so we, we ask you to do it. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am, I am not exactly what you would call a happy person. Um, I'm not, I'm not unhappy. I mean, don't, let's like, don't, don't think, I'm not like miserable or, or, or whatever. But if you were to like to ask my closest friends for a few words to describe me, like none of them uh, would use the word happy. It's just not, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I have more like the personality where these are the kinds of, of articles I get sent. Pessimism may be bad for your heart. Great. Thanks for that. That was from a congregation member. So now not only am I a pessimist, I'm also dying. Um, uh, but I, you know, I guess I already assumed that, right? Um, I mean, I've, I've always, I've always leaned towards the the melancholy as long as I can remember. It's just, it's just part of my story. It's, it's part of my of who I am. Uh, and yet, you know, in that, as long as I can remember, I've always had this like sort of obsession with the idea of joy. Um, like wanting to know what it is and how I get it, and, you know, maybe it's part of the, the lack that I experienced, but there's just, like, what, what is it, right? In fact, we, we named our, our daughter Eden, which means, like, paradise, delight, right? Her middle name is Joy. Like, we kind of gave her the same name twice. I mean, that, that's, that's how we, we're, we're sort of drawn to this word. And really, if you think about it, all Christians should be obsessed with the idea of joy. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know it to to look at us, but like joy, that ought to be an inevitable part of life with Jesus. When people think of Christians, they should think of joy, right? Joy to the world, right? Well, here's another article to keep you awake at night. 
about this increase in major depression among teens. It's up 37% in just 10 years. And, and maybe you see that, you read that, and it's like, honestly, do we really even need the article to tell us? We, we see it, we experience, and frankly, students, if you're here and that describes you, um, you're not alone. Your church loves you. We want to help you. Let us into that so we can walk with you in that. But also, like, you, you read that and you're like, well, let's, I think we know better than to think it's just teens, too, don't we? It's on a rise with all of us. Joy to the world. Now, I love Christmas. I really do. Um, I know it sounds like I'm talking myself into that, which is maybe partially true. But I do. I love, I love Christmas. And yet, like for those of you who, who feel this, like who maybe are bent more towards the melancholy or just, just carrying something deep and hard right now, in some ways, like Christmas almost makes it a little bit harder, right? Because you know it's the hap- happiest season of all, right? And so there's all this all this pressure to be happy. It's exhausting. And really, even, even if that's not you, right? And you are excited for all that's in store in these next couple weeks. Still, there's just so much riding on these next several days to make you happy, isn't there? So many expectations. I think we probably all would recognize, right, that Happiness and joy, they're not the same thing, right? There's, there's some difference there. There's overlap, certainly. And we're not going to sort of unpack all, all the, the ways in which they're the same and different. It's just we're not going to get clouded there. Uh, but, but essentially, I've heard it explained that, like, think of, think of joy or joylessness as, like, the climate of your soul, right? And temp- uh, happiness is like the temperature, right? And temperatures change, right? Sometimes it's bitterly, terribly, horribly, awfully cold, um, right? And other times it's, it's not, it's, it's hot. And, and somewhere, somewhere in between, temperatures change all the time. Climates remain the same, essentially. And so this morning we're talking about the climate of joy. And if you follow Jesus, joy is both a promise and a priority, but it's not easy. It's one of the reasons I love the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are just so honest. And so often in the Psalms, uh, we we see that that lament and joy, they often go hand in hand. That laughter and tears aren't aren't the opposites we sometimes think they are, but can can even work together in some sort of like strange partnership. In fact, the the word in our text this morning uh, in Hebrew for, for cry out, for joy, it can also be translated elsewhere as cry out in pain and lament and heartache. We think of them as, as opposites, but the psalmist doesn't. In fact, here in, in Psalm 126, that's, that's where we're at this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to look there. But the message, the message of Psalm 126 is really, it's pretty clear. Um, it feels contradictory, but if there's one thing for you to take with you this morning, one thing for you to remember, it's this. The psalmist is saying, joy grows best in a field of tears. That's, that's what happens best. Joy grows best in a field of tears. Kind of infuriating, right? But friends, this is, this is good news for the hurting. This is God's promise to you and, and to me. I mean, the Bible, it never, it never minimizes our trouble or our heartache. And God never promises a minimum of tears for those who follow him. But he does 
promise to turn your tears into laughter, your heartache into joy. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, right, to some of you. It sounds impossible. And yet, and yet as we look at this, this ancient song, there, there are three sections. This is a short psalm, only six verses. Three sections and really three, three clues on how to cultivate joy in a world so broken. And I want, I want to read the whole thing for us again. It's short enough for me to do that. Um, but as I, as I read, like listen for these three sections. Listen for these, these strange clues. Psalm 126, beginning with verse one, the psalmist writes, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, now like most Psalms, we don't really know the context in which it was written. Like the story, the situation. We do occasionally for some of the Psalms. In some ways, it's the beauty of the Psalms. It's, it's, they're, they're meant to be sort of flexible, right? They're meant to be, to be read and, and grabbed onto in all of life's heartaches and, and joys as well. But this Psalm, whatever's happening, right? The Psalmist, first he, he looks back on this time of great joy somewhere in their history. And then he simply asks, God, would you do that again, please? And then... He tells us about the strength of tears in bringing and cultivating joy. And so here, here's our first clue. Uh, this comes out of verses one through three, the first section. If you want to cultivate joy in your life, joy needs history more than it needs distraction. You can't miss that in the way the psalmist writes. It needs history more than distraction. Because instead of, instead of beginning his song telling us like why he's suffering, like why it's so bad, right? Or even beginning with his request to God, like you kind of think he'd start there. Instead, the psalmist here, he begins with a kind of a history lesson, doesn't he? I mean, look what he says in those first three verses. I mean, essentially like, uh, remember the time, right? Do you remember the time? It was like a dream, he's saying. Like, it, was, it was like, it was too good to be true what we experienced. Remember when we were just all laughing and, and life was good and easy and, and even the surrounding nations, around, they looked at us and were like, whose God is that? What, what kind of God treats his people that, that beautifully? Remember that time? And he's recounting the joys of his people and their collective history. He's looking at them together back then. My tendency, like, you know, when the feelings of joy are lacking and whatever, it's not to look back. It's not to find my identity with a group of people, right, who are doing better than me. It's to focus on right now. That's what I do, right, on the problem, what, what I'm feeling. It's, a, it's about me now. But for the psalmist, clearly, joy, it's about us back then. I mean, you see, I, I, have, I have such an anemic 
definition of joy. And we do, don't we? We think that it's, it's primar- primarily about our circumstances, right? The immediate, how I feel now. And it's not that those things are unimportant. Certainly they are. But real joy, according to the psalmist, is rooted in our shared identity. The things that we share as a people. The history, the long history of what God has done for us and for our ancestors and their ancestors and on and on and on. Not, not our moment-by-moment experience. For the psalmist, joy is an identity. It's who we are now because of this God that we serve. Our identity is with the people of God, which, I mean, you think about it, it runs a whole lot deeper than the last five minutes, right? Whatever making me miserable at the moment or, or even really my, my 80 years, if I'm, if I'm lucky. But he... Like our identity as the people of God is that he's adopted us. He's claimed us as, as his own. And he's the same God who parts waters, provides manna from heaven, um, who, who shows his people how best to live. He's the same God who, who came to this earth, who knows what it's like to feel our, our heartache and pain. He's the, he's the same one who calms the storm and heals the sick and raises the dead, who died for our heartache and sin and walked out of the grave victorious. I know so, so often when I read those old stories, I think, well, that's, that's great for them, right? That's their stories. That's what happened for those people. But what the psalmist is saying, no, that's, that's our story. That's our collective identity. That it didn't happen to them. It happened to us. That, that we can look back and say, look at what God has done for me over and over and over for millennia. Can I, can I trust him again? And really, you don't even have to necessarily look back that far. I mean, if you are a Christian, like, do you, do you remember when God first wooed you to himself? Like, do you, do you remember when you, when you first gave him your life and experienced his joy and forgiveness? But the release of shame, the inbreaking of hope. Do you remember, do you remember his patience? Like, the, things in, the ways in which he's continued to be, the, the prayers that, that he's answered on your behalf. Like, when's the last time you've told that story to someone? Like told somebody how you became a Christian. Like there's power in doing that because like in the doing it, it's like, oh yeah. Like that was a choice I made. I, I want that. Like do we even remind ourselves of why we're, we're Christians? Like why, why Jesus for you? Why would, how would you answer that question? Now, does that fix the way we all feel, right? Make us all happy all of a sudden? I mean, don't be naive right? Of course. I have dealt with low-dose depression my entire life. There's, there's no quick and easy fix for any of it. But when we remember, when we get outside our, our heads for just a moment to picture our, our collective identity as the people of God for millennia, cultivates a soil in which joy just might possibly be able to grow. And besides, what's the alternative to remembering, right? I mean, I think it's one of the best thing, one of the things we're best at. Um, let me ask, are you remembering or are you self-medicating? And listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about the legitimate need for medication um, or therapy by any means. Um, that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. What, what I'm talking about is like the human tendency to to medicate ourselves, right? To distract, to numb, to find anything to, to help us feel a little bit better for, for a moment, right? 
I mean, you know, you know, you know your options, right? Do you, do you know the things that you go to? The things that you, you use for just a little bit of relief in life's pains? There's endless options, right? Sex, alcohol, food, shopping, Facebook, busyness, family, video games, sports, grades, work, reaching for your smartphone every six seconds because you can't be bored for a minute, right? I mean, they're all fine things. But if you're asking those things to change the climate of your soul, I mean, really? Of course you're going to be disappointed. I love, love hate. That's probably a better statement. What Eugene Peterson writes he's on his book in the Psalms. This feels too much like me. And I love entertainment. I love to be entertained. I love a good movie or show or whatever. But listen to what he says. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court gesture to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. And yet we go to it over and over and over and over again. Maybe it's not the entertainment things for you, but like you, you know what it is, right? You know where you go just to feel a little bit better, to forget for a moment. So are we, or are we actively remembering our shared identity as a people? I mean, how do we do that? I mean, it's the same things, right? Same things we say all the time, right? You gotta, like personal devotions, read your Bible, pray, spend time alone with God, reflect on who you are, look, look in. You, part of it, you just have to tell yourself, remind yourself who you are community, going to church. I mean, when, when you're in the pit, and, and some of you know, right? Some of you are there now. Some of you have been there recently. You know what it's like. You can't remember when you're in the pit, right? You can't even see outside the walls, the darkness like closing in around you. You need people to remember for you in those moments. I've had those moments, right? That's, that's why we gather together as a people. It's why, we, it's why we sing. We don't just sing to God. We sing so that others can hear that we still believe, even if they're struggling, Right? even when they're feeling weak and lost. And if you, need, if you need help here, let us help you with this. We have a new community group session starting in January. It's an easy sort of entry point to, to jump in. If you don't have these kinds of relationships in your life, you cannot expect joy in moments of terrible heartache. Um, let us help with that. Joy needs history and community more than it needs distraction. Cultivate that soil. Okay, the second, the second clue here, um, it comes out in the actual request the psalmist makes, which interestingly enough is the shortest part of the whole psalm. Um, he simply asks God in, in verse four, basis, basically what we, what we see here um, is that joy is a mysterious gift more than it is a, a pursuit. It's a gift more than a pursuit, right? You can't, you can't buy it. You can't stumble upon it. You can't try really hard to get it. We, we ask for it. God, would you, would you do this for me, in me? And so look at, look at what he says in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, not our fortunes like our bank accounts, right? It's like, it's like restore our, uh, us to a place of flourishing. Make, make the world right again. Make me right again, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, that's the, the Negev is the, like the southern region of, of Israel, of Judah. Um, 
So if you don't know, what, what is he possibly talking about? Basically, he's saying like the desert. That's, that's where the desert is. It's like a place of, of wilderness. It's a place where there's, there is no flourishing and there are no streams. And like, you know, I don't know if you've spent much time in the desert. Our family, we've vacationed there a few times. Here's a, a picture of us. Uh, this is in New Mexico this past summer. That's David and Eden way down there um, trying to sled off a sand dune. Um, and I mean, the desert, like, it has its own uh, sort of beauty to it but only if you know where your next drink of water is coming from, right? I mean, otherwise, it's a terrifying place, isn't it? It's awful. In fact, I mean, when we were there in Arizona this summer, it hit 122 on Father's Day. Um, Like, it's a dry heat, but it will kill you, okay? Uh, It's terribly, terribly hot. And the psalmist, he's saying, that's that's what it feels like right now, my, my soul, that, that's the metaphor he picks up. It's like a desert. God, would you please bring your rains with, with the, your rush of roaring waters flow into my life and bring, bring wholeness, bring life again. I mean, have you, have you known that desert feeling before in here? And it sounds like such an insane request, right? God, make it rain in the desert, basically. Um, and yet, uh, also in our travels in, uh, in Arizona and whatnot, we've seen lots of signs like this, which is, just seems ridiculous. It seems like a practical joke, warning flash flood area. Um, and they're all over the place. And you see them, and you, it's almost like you cannot even conceive, like, ever there being water in a place like that. It seems impossible. Yet we also know that occasionally rain does come, and it does flood quickly, and it, does, it brings with it just a tiny bit of flourishing in those places, even in the desert. And the psalmist is saying, please, God, would you do that for me? Would you bring just even, just even the smallest rain, even the tiniest stream into this desert of a life or circumstance that he has? What do we do instead? I mean, do we, do we ask for joy or do we chase it? I don't really have to answer that question for us, do I? We know. In fact, if, if I were to ask you, like, and you were truly, completely honest, and I was completely honest as well, if I were to ask you, what is the number one goal of your life? Or, or the number one goal for your kids? Most of us, I think, would probably even say, but if not say, like, if we were to look deeply into what you're living, what your implicit goals are, I think most of us would say, you know, I just want to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. And, and, I, and I get that. Like, I, I want that for myself and I want that for the people around me. And we want to be happy. It's even, I mean, it's in our founding documents for crying out loud, right? The pursuit of happiness, which, I mean, come on, let's be honest. That's a ridiculous idea, isn't it? I mean, ask, ask any philosopher or psychologist, the surest place, the surest, surest way to like miss happiness is to chase it, is to pursue it. I mean, if that's, if that's our end, like if that's our chief goal, we're not going to have it. In fact, I'm, I'm working through uh, Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it's his, his memoirs of life in a concentration camp. So, I mean, talk about a place where joy, where happiness is, is lacking, right? Talk about a desert. Uh, and yet, yet he writes, even, even from that place, that happiness cannot be our goal. That happiness, happiness is never an end in itself, but always, it's always a byproduct of something better, right? And I think we know that, don't we? We, we know that you can't just go after happiness. You go after something of, of greater value and, and 
maybe happiness will be thrown in, right? You'll get, you'll get it along the way. In fact, um, uh, a pastor in California, in one of his books, his name is John Ortberg, uh, he, he writes about this, and, and he really talks about the fact, he builds on what Frankel is saying, that we all, we all know this. We all know that happiness can't be the goal for our lives, even though it's, I mean, it is the goal, but it can't be, right? We know that, and, and the example he gives is like, imagine if there was a machine that I could like plug into your brain, um, and it would make you happy forever, give you feelings of happiness forever. But you'd also be in a coma forever. I mean, as soon as you got plugged in, right, you'd have the most incredible dreams. Pleasures like you've never imagined, surges of happiness like you haven't ever experienced. But you'd never accomplish anything. You'd never go anywhere. You'd never be in a relationship with another human being. Would you pick it? Would you do it? No, of course not, because we know that's not, that's not a life. Right? It's like something straight out of the Matrix or Inception, right? It's like we, we, know, we know that that, we know each one of us that there has got to be something better than happiness. So stop chasing it. Give yourself to something bigger and ask God to give you joy instead. For, for in, in the asking and frankly in the whole lot of waiting that often comes with asking God to do something, cultivate the soil. Even just a little bit. Okay, so Nathan, that'll fix it, right? Come on. And listen, I, I, know, I know enough of your stories to know that some of you have been asking for this for a really, really long time. For some of you, it feels like your whole life, for like forever. You've been, God, would you please just do it? And, and maybe you've even done most, most everything right. And still, it just feels like it's just, so, it's just, it's so close, but you can't grab it. And that's why this last clue is so important. We need this. I need this. That joy is a promise, even when it feels impossible. It's a promise, even when it feels ridiculous. So we've, we've been cultivating the soil together. Now it's time to start planting. And it's maybe a little bit hard for us to understand. Probably most of us aren't farmers here. Um, but let me read it, and then we'll try to do our best to understand. Look what he says in verse 5. I think it's, even if you're not a farmer, I think if you, if you follow the language, you can see this, this, the rich metaphor he gives. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He's saying that joy grows best in the field of tears. I mean, I mean here, here's the promise, right? If you, if you plant with tears, when the harvest comes, you will not be able to stop celebrating. It'll be that incredible. He says that if those who go out weeping, like casting their seed as they go, planting along the way, they will return home with shouts of joy, weighed down by such an incredible harvest. Which I know for many of us doesn't even seem remotely possible, does it? That God is going to take every one of all those tears, and He's going to make something joyful out of it. It kind of reminds me just a little bit um, of the movie Inside Out. 
I love this movie. Kids, you know this one. Parents, you know this one. If you haven't seen it, you're missing. It's, it's really, it's pretty great. Um, I love these kind of movies. I'm, I always cry. I'm just, that, that's me. Um, but it, it's, it's a fast, for those, like the six of you who don't know the story, um, <laughs> it's, it's basically, it's like the emotions of the main character personified within her brain. Okay, does that make like a little bit of sense? Um, and so you've got disgust and you've got anger and they're like these, they're these people interacting and, and really the main characters are joy and sadness. Uh, and, and you know, joy is just like, she's bubbly and awesome and you know, we all know joy, right? And she kind of, you know, she's happy and great but we kind of want to like, you know, a little too much sometimes. Um, everything has to be happy for her. And sadness, I mean, sadness is just sad like all the time, right? It's, it's kind of hard to watch and yet, it's also like deep and, and beautiful. And the whole plot of the story is that the two of them have to work together. Like neither of them can flourish on their own. That, that even, that there, there's something about sadness that joy, joy needs to make her joy even more joyful, right? That brings a joy that she could never know on her own. That, that is a tiny part of what the psalmist is getting at. But it's so much more for us. Because what the psalmist is saying is not just a byproduct. It's a promise. The God of the universe, the one who made you and everything else, is promising you to plant your tears and to harvest joy for you. Yeah, there's going to be tears. It's part of it. God never trivializes or minimizes our pain. But he promises you every one of your tears will be accounted for. Not one of them will be wasted. Every, every one of them will eventually reap joy. Which kind of means, if you think about it, that the best weepers now will be the best laughers then. I got to tell you, that gives me a little bit of hope for me. Somebody sort of bent in this direction. It's going to be worth it one day. And I know some of you, some of you have planted a whole lot of tears and you've been watering and watering and watering. I know you may not be able to see it now and I know the impatience that, com- impatience that comes with waiting. So does the psalmist. And I, I can't tell you when. But the promise is that those seeds will grow and just imagine the harvest you'll have. The fruits of, of joy and delight, of, of satisfaction and contentment, and they will be yours forever. Joy that nothing and no one can ever take away from you. And so let me just ask one more question. Are you planting or are you despairing? Are you planting your tears or are you wasting them? Because I, I know what some of you are probably thinking. I was like, Nathan, are you just saying I have to like, wait till I'm dead and then I can have joy? Like, great, that's, that's a hopeful story. Merry Christmas. Um, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, there, I'm not going to lie to you, right? There, there is a sense in which none of us, even, even the happiest of all of us, that none of us will experience the fullness of joy until we are finally made whole completely. And our world is finally and completely made right. And we are, we are in the presence of Christ himself. All of our joy, no matter what it is, no, no matter how you're wired, it will be lacking till that day. But even while we wait, 
I mean, part of, the, part of the joy now, part of the joy for today is anticipating the joy that's coming, right? It's, it's like waiting for the very best Christmas, right? There's, there's joy in the, in the anticipation, knowing that it's coming, believing that it'll be here and that it's, it's, gonna, be, it's gonna be good, right? Like, like, like a farmer. Like the farmer isn't going out planting seeds thinking, ah, this might be a good thing, right? They know, right? They're confident that this is going to produce a harvest, that this work is going to be, this heart, this pain it's going to pay off. That what God has done in the past, he will do again. And he will do it for you. I mean, this, this is why joy can look past our circumstances. I mean, it has to, doesn't it? Joy knows who God is, who I am as a result, and where it's all headed. headed. And you cannot have lasting joy without the end of the story. I mean, you're not going to find it under the tree or at the next party. Or really, even if everything just happens to go perfect these next two weeks for you and your family. It's not, but even if it did, right? You're not, it's, it's not going to do it. Not ultimately. If you want real joy, Lasting joy, you'll find it in your ache for home. And those with tears ache for home. Which, which means, if you, if you think about it, that, that every moment of joy now ought to be uh, an opportunity for, for anticipation and celebration of the greater joy that's coming, right? That even, even the greatest experience, the greatest joy, the most beautiful moments of your life now I mean, and, and you know those, those times, right? Those, those things where it's like the high point and you just wish it could last forever and you want more of it. You want to figure out a way to bottle up. You, you've had those, those fleeting moments of sheer bliss, right? Have you noticed that they always come with just the tiniest bit of ache, don't they? I don't think it's just because I'm a little bit, you know, melancholic. I mean, I, they, they come with an ache because you want it to last forever. Like you, you don't, you don't want to lose it. You, you know how fleeting and how quick it is. It's because, friends, it's because it's meant to only be a taste. The joy now that we have, it's an appetizer. Don't try to fill up on the appetizer. Not, not when greatest joy is still on its way. It's still coming for us. And you know, this, the flip side is also true of this, that every, every tear now ought to serve as a reminder, a signpost, Right? that we were not meant for this, that we were created for so much more, that God is not done with us yet. He's not done with your story. He's not done with our world, that it's headed somewhere, that he, that you're meant for a better home. I love how Rich Mullins describes it in one of his songs. If you don't know who he is, that's okay. I'm a little bit dated here, I guess, but I love, I love this song of his. It says, he says, so if I stand let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. It's always headed home, isn't it? That's the constant theme of, of the story. In fact, did you, did you notice, if you have your Bible, like, did you notice like, in the, the psalm, there's like the, a title. Some of the psalms have these. This one's given a title. It says there's song of ascents, like ascents, like a climb, like ascend, right, ascents. Um, do you see that there? Like there's, there's, there's 15 of these psalms grouped together. 
um, all called the Songs of Ascents. Like, what does that possibly mean? Well, you see, these, these songs were, were specifically set aside. I mean, think, the Psalms is just a hym- hymnal, right? It's just an old-fashioned songbook. That's what it is, okay? And, and these songs were set aside to be sung every year at, at Passover on the journey to Jerusalem, uh, on the journey home. Every year they were sung. I mean, just like we sing Christmas songs, like as soon as you hear it, you know it, right? And you're, it, like, it's identified there. That these, that's what this song was for. And as I thought about that, I just wondered, like, what was it like for Jesus singing this song? Because you know he did every year. As a child, as a teenager, as an adult. I mean, can you imagine him singing these words? What do, they, what do they mean for him? Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Because, you know, honestly, I'm guessing for a lot of us, we kind of have these images of, of Jesus. You know, for a lot, it's probably like he's stern and stoic, right? He's all serious all the time. Or, or maybe you just picture him as, you know, the little baby version. Or, or, like, or even just by some of his, his nicknames, right? The, the big, powerful ones like King of Kings and, and Emmanuel, God with us, Prince of Peace, Lion of Judah. And we love, we love those names. But I thought about this psalm, and I pictured Jesus singing this year after year on his way to Jerusalem. I thought of another nickname of his. It's one that Isaiah gives him. Um, feels a little bit more like me, frankly. More like us. I can identify with it a little bit easier. Um, Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. It's easy to forget that one, right? Because it's like, I don't like that. I called him the sad guy, right? Man of sorrows. I imagine Jesus entering Jerusalem that last time. Or even, even all the times before that, over and over again, singing this song, knowing why he came, already headed Jerusalem, planting with his tears. Because so he didn't just plant with tears, he planted with his own blood. He took upon all of our shame and all of our pain on the cross. He died for our sins, and he was really, truly planted in the ground for my transgressions, dead and buried man of sorrows. But he didn't stay dead. He burst forth from the ground with shouts of joy so that this promise could be kept for you and for me, for all who trust in him. And it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. But it wasn't a joy to get there. And I love the picture at the end of the story. You know, in Revelation, Jesus comes back and all the mystery that that is and yet this, this incredible picture when Jesus himself reaches forward and wipes every tear from your eyes and mine. It's going to take a while, right? I guess we have plenty of time. But just imagine that's every one of us, all of our tears, every bit of them, that he will do that and all that, all that you've lost in your life will finally somehow be restored. Every, everything that's been wrong or wronged to you, it will, it will finally somehow, somehow be made right. And friends, this, this is why Jesus came. This is why 2,000 years later, we can continue to celebrate Christmas with joy, even in a world as broken and desperate as ours. Because we know what's in store. I mean, honestly, if I could, if I could paint you a picture, I would. Like if I, if I could actually like find the language to be able to describe all that's coming for us. Even if I could do it, you wouldn't believe me. I wouldn't believe me. 
Joy grows best in a field of tears, and we await a harvest we cannot even fathom. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you come? Come quickly. How great it would be to celebrate Christmas in your presence. With the fullness of joy. As you wipe every tear from our eyes. When you hand back everything that's been lost. And you make us right, fully and completely. God, we cannot even begin to fathom the harvest of joy you will give us. But God, we're not there yet, and so I pray that in the meantime, help us to anticipate, help us to celebrate. God, I, I pray that the moments of, of greatest delight over these next couple weeks, and I pray that there would be many for all of us, of laughter and celebration, of, of times when when it feels as if the world is just right, even if it's just for a split second. God, I pray that you give us that experience, and yet I pray too that that, that give us the ache along with it, reminding us that there is so much more in store. Help us not, try to, help us not to try to fill up on the appetizers. And God, I pray too that in every tear, and I know there'll be many for some of us, in that longing, I pray God, would you help it to be as, as a longing for home? Help us instead of, for those who are, who, are, who are deep in the pit, God, I pray that instead of despair, God, would you help them to plant their tears? Knowing and believing and taking joy in what you promised to do for them. God, that's, that's a work only you can do. And so we pray that you would help us to believe.